the views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio, Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. They let us play with all our toys. They let us think that we're big boys. They let us make a lot of noise but we're the world. They let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye-bye. Oh, 
Good evening and welcome to Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. It's good to have you along for the ride on this Thursday, May 4th, Friday, May 5th. If you're on the East Coast, may the 4th be with you and revenge of the 5th tomorrow. We are live right here at Uncle Jimbo's Cabin, right here in the Great White North. So we are live seven days a week. We welcome in our terrestrial radio stations tuning on in. WQEE 99 Rock the Key in Noonan, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. We're also live on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We're live at SpacedOutRadio.com on Spreaker. KTLK, the Fringe FM in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. Remember the Double Army Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. If you like our music, then rock with us to Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, the former lead guitarist of Guns N' Roses, current lead guitarist of Art of Anarchy. Bumblefoot is the official sound of SOR. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can follow me on Instagram, Dave Scott SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player.fm, and Stitcher. Our website, of course, is SpacedOutRadio.com. And if you head over to Patreon.com for as low as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of Spaced Out radio now if you want to take part in this show you got to do me a favor you have to sign into one of the chat rooms either on our website by clicking listen live or on revolution radio on spreaker on the uprn chat room or on facebook if you're a valued member of the sor space travelers club or if you're on twitter be like deb be like hh be like dennis and use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio. I'll get to your questions and comments in there as well if you head to our website for five bucks a month all you have to do is pay that, you become an SOR space traveler, it is that easy. We have a brand new news section called The Encounter Online, some great paranormal news there by our editors Eric Markham and Everett Themer. You can check my latest blog there as well, and if you've had a sighting you can't explain, fill out an SOR Sightlines report, we'll figure out what's going on for you. Tonight we head to Vancouver, British Columbia for a mystery on the shores of the Georgia Strait that has baffled police, the media, and the public alike. The mystery started about 10 years ago, give or take, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, feet, detached from their bodies, started washing up on the shorelines of the harbors surrounding Vancouver, the island, and the Fraser River. The first foot was noticed around 2007. Since then, there's been approximately 15 to 20 more. The identities of some of the victims have been found, but for the most part, it's still a mystery behind what's causing these feet to wash up. It's relatively unknown. Now, the police and forensic scientists believe it's from suicide or people who have had accidents in water that filter into the ocean. However, there are many people out there who believe it's a cover-up for a serial killer roaming around that the police just don't want to alert the public. British Columbia has had a share of high-profile murderers. Clifford Olson in the early 80s killed 11 children. Robert Willie Picton was convicted of killing more than 30 drug-addicted women and prostitutes on his pig farm. 
Then there's the unsolved mystery of the native women disappearing in the northern area, where literally we broadcast from, called the Highway of Tears. Contributing writer to Newsweek, Winston Ross has looked into this story. He's inspected the evidence, and tonight he's going to go over the story of Vancouver's missing feet. Winston, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Spaced Out Radio. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It is very nice to actually chat with someone about this because, you know, every state, every province in North America, well, we can include the territories way up high, they all have their own mystery that is unsolved. And this is one of the strange ones with these missing feet that keep washing up on on shore. Now, obviously, we're going to get into that a lot tonight. But as a journalist, what intrigued you about this story? I, what what didn't intrigue me about this story? I mean, I, this is this is one of the stories that stays with you for your entire career. I, I'll never forget it. I mean, I when I first came across this in 2008, um, I was covering like an array of different crime stories and interesting things like around the Pacific Northwest. I'm based in Oregon, and um, I, when I when I heard that feet were washing up on the shores of British Columbia, it was, it was a kind of a no-brainer for a journalist. Like, you want to you want to know more. Every, everything about it is intriguing. Now, when you decided to become a journalist, was true crime the area you wanted to focus on? Not, not necessarily, but true crime is a, is a, you know, it's definitely always been like a natural fascination of me and lots of people. Like, there are reasons that true crime books do so well and movies do so well because, you know, most of us aren't capable of committing murders and we, but we want to understand why, why people, what drives people to do sick and twisted things. So we're naturally kind of drawn to it. And, and then there's a mystery element. I mean, you know, let's face it. Most mysteries are who done it, who, who killed person or who killed these people and and everybody wants to kind of play amateur sleuth and figure out how you how you get to the end of it so you know i've i've always i haven't necessarily focused on true crime but i but it's definitely an undeniably fascinating topic no absolutely and and it is one of those topics that really as a journalist it intrigues you it keeps you going it's like being on the crime beat or the gang beat when i was on the beat in Vancouver as a reporter, I was on the sports beat. I was a sports guy. So being on the beat is one of those real fun times. Sure, the anchors get all the glory or the or the television commentators get all the glory or the columnists in the paper, but getting out there and getting your hands dirty with a story, no matter what the topic is, that that's really the fun part, isn't it? Yeah, you don't want to be stuck in a newsroom or even a TV studio. I would, I would hate to be a a news anchor, honestly. I mean, you just read—you're basically just reading stories off of a teleprompter at that point. Like the fun is going out, talking to people. I mean, being a reporter is sort of like being a, a, a detective with no with no stakes. Like you don't have to solve the crime. Nobody nobody's looking to you to like arrest people or hunt people down or or you know get shot at. Like you just get to kind of play detective and then write what you find out. So. Great mm-hmm. job. Did, did you always want to be a journalist, though? Was that what you went to school for, or was that something that you kind of fell into? 
No, I've I've always wanted to be a journalist since I was 13 or 14 years old. I I did a little um a little program uh back in the Bay Area in California um called Junior Sports Writers for a day and it was back when the San Francisco Giants were uh World Series contenders. I know they have been recently too, but uh I was like we we got to go to this press conference where a bunch of like junior high school kids got to like ask tough questions of the manager at the time, Roger Craig, and I got to ask tough questions and it just made me feel like important, you know, and 13 year old kids don't often get to feel like what they have to say matters. And it really stuck with me. It's like something that, you know, I had a voice and, and, uh, I, I never wanted to give it up. See, with me, it was a little different. I had an adverse agenda than all the other reporters. I, I had always wanted to work for an NHL team. And I, I can tell you, I, I met a lot of good NHL people. And it was, I retired from radio in 2007 on the mainstream. And just a couple months before I retired, Vancouver hosted the Memorial Cup, which if you're from the Oregon area, you're probably familiar with the Portland Winterhawks to play in that league. And long story short, a gentleman whom I had known since I was probably 12 years old, was the director of amateur scouting for the Edmonton Oilers. And I reintroduced myself. I hadn't seen him in probably 15 years at that time, 16 years. And we just got to talking. And I said, he goes, what made you become a reporter? And I said, well, to be honest, I said, it's my dream to work for an NHL team. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't really care. Scouting, whatever, I'll do anything. It's just been my dream. He goes, well, why don't you call me this summer and join his cool. scout and join his scouting team? Well, literally a month after I quit radio, or no, pardon me, a couple days after I quit radio, I found out my ex-wife had another guy on the side, and I literally just dropped absolutely everything to concentrate on being a dad for my daughter. So I didn't get to live the dream, but, you know, I got close, and that's all that really matters. Well, maybe in the next life. Hopefully. Hopefully. But we all take that path, because the one thing I could say about journalism, man, and I'm sure you'll agree, doesn't matter what the topic is, it's a lot of fun. It's a career that's always changing and you're always on the move. Do you still get that rush of it, or has it become something that is just a little bit of a career now? I, w I would only disagree with you slightly. It does matter what the topic is to the extent that if you get locked into, uh, you know, covering a, a small town for a local newspaper and you wind up having to go to planning and zoning meetings every Thursday night and trying to find something interesting to write about it, then it's not as dynamic and exciting as, as you might think. So I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's a career that if you, if you continue to kind of pursue what you, what we find interesting and, uh, and keep, kind of moving in in that direction you will you can eventually and you're good at it you can eventually get to a place where you're you know you're mostly pursuing stories that you find really interesting um it's just and if you if you're not doing that then you certainly shouldn't be shouldn't spend 10 years wasting your time doing something that's boring so it, it's kind of a mixed bag it depends on what you make of it like anything do you still like the idea of breaking stories though yeah, absolutely. Uh, every 
you know, especially in today's environment where, you know, 10 years ago, you had these kind of silos of uh, news operation where, you know, a story that broke, um, I shouldn't even say 10 years ago, maybe even longer ago, 15 years ago, a story that broke on this coast, you know, two, two newspapers 200 miles away from each other could both kind of publish a story and break a story and claim that it's exclusive. But today you can't get away with that anymore because everything everybody publishes is, a, is typically immediately posted online. And so it's very hard to be the first at something. It's very hard to like break a story and, and, you know, and tell somebody something they haven't already heard and hasn't already popped up on their Facebook feed and their Twitter feed. And so, you know, it's, it's getting increasingly rare to be somebody that has a scoop. And if you, if you get one, it's absolutely still a rush. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Something fierce. And, you know, that's the one thing in sports, especially that, you know, Twitter was just starting to evolve when I came out of it. But when we were on the air, man, to get a story and to be able to break a story that was national, I mean, the ego trip that you got from that, I mean, it was like taking every ounce of air out of your body and just feeling exhausted, like, man, I can't believe I just got that, you know, just can't believe it did it. And it was a rush because let's face it, as a journalist, for the most part, none of us are in it for the money, Winston. We're in it for telling stories. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, um, we, if there's not a lot of money in journalism, it's definitely one of these things that you do, um, just because you love it. And, um, and because, you know, because it gives you something, you know, if you're, if you're in the right job anyway, it gives you something interesting to work on every day. I mean, most of us have been doing journalism for a while. We stick around even as the you know, the business model gets harder and the competition gets tougher and you've got, you know, kids coming out of college who are willing to work for half of, half of what you are. Um, we stay with it because we just can't imagine doing anything else. Can't imagine getting up and going to work every day as an accountant or a, you know, a real estate agent, no offense to any of those professions, but it just, it just seems, it just seems hard to go do a regular job after you've had, had one like this, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm glad that you came on tonight because this is a topic that I have wanted to do for a while. And believe it or not, there's not a lot of people talking about this story. Explain to us how you started learning about the missing feet washing up on Vancouver's shores. Well, I think I, I first came across this story back in the summer of 2008 and um, you're going to test my memory to try to, to try to help me figure out uh, how I first learned about it. I, it's entirely possible that uh, an editor, an editor of mine um, at Newsweek, I was, I was freelancing for Newsweek at the time and working for a, a daily newspaper um, down in, in Eugene, Oregon. And, um, I think an editor at Newsweek, they often, you know, they're based in New York and they, and in particular in those days, there was this kind of, um, there was this kind of culture or attitude in New York that like weird things happen out on the West coast. And so they were always kind of, uh, they're always like on the, on the lookout for like the next weird West coast thing to happen. Uh, and maybe, maybe, 
Canada more so. And somebody spotted this, you know, probably a probably a story or two that had popped up in uh, in your local media up there, and uh, and sent it to me and asked me to dig into it a little more. And and um, nobody had at that point like really, you know, dived in and and done much research. There were just these kind of sporadic reports, like hey, uh, a hiker, a, a, you know, somebody walking along a beach found a, a, a foot on the beach, clad in a tennis shoe. And then, you know, another story might pop up a few weeks later that says, like, another foot popped up on another beach. Um, and, you know, obviously a pattern developed and a, and a bunch of people um, started speculating, and, and that's when I got that's when I got involved in it. And I remember when I was in the media, this story just started coming out. And like you said, it was hikers or people walking along the beach finding a shoe, and there just happens to be a skeletal foot inside. And that's where the mystery started. And I can tell you this. I have a couple of reporter friends still in Vancouver where they've heard from the police, they've heard from forensics, they've heard from scientists at the university, everybody who has studied this. But they are still convinced that Vancouver police and other outlets of the RCMP could be hiding something here because all those people committing suicide or jumping off of boats or jumping into the ocean just doesn't make sense. Well, I I will say, I mean, I, I I am a little bit surprised to hear that people are still are still kind of t- talking about this as much as they were i mean i i'm not surprised at all that this is an assassinating case and i'm and i know at the you know at the time over the year or two that i wrote a couple of different stories about this i'm not surprised that it was like a pretty much at the center of the canadian and even to some degree international zeitgeist but um but i'm a little surprised that people are still talking about it and and i mean we can we can talk about all the different reasons for various theories. Um, and I'm happy to, I, I will say that, you know, it's part of it that, that still feels strange for sure is you don't hear about this happening anywhere else in the world. You know, you don't, you, I, I've never heard a, a story like this uh, about a bunch of tennis shoe clad feet popping up on, uh, on the shores of the Black Sea or the Mediterranean or the Atlantic, like the the question that's that's you know nobody's really done a great job of answering is why here. Well, and that's a mystery. I mean, the scientific answer that has gone around through the RCMP, Vancouver Police, and forensics is basically these are people who maybe were caught up in accidents, maybe people who drown up in the Fraser River or other rivers that stream into the ocean, and the currents take them underneath, the body sinks underneath the water, and the fish and all the crustaceans feed off of it, but because the foot is protected by the rubber, that's why the foot is able to detach itself from the body. And then, of course, because rubber floats, it goes to the surface, 
and then eventually makes its way to land. And that sounds good well, and, and all. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean that's that's entirely plausible, and and it's also, it you know it's also it also kind of answers a question why now because you know twenty years ago um, there were there were or maybe I should say thirty or forty years ago we didn't have like air bubbles in uh, in tennis shoes that cause them to float in the way that they do now, and so. You know, it's it's I, that makes sense on a certain level, but it also doesn't really answer the question: Why here? Why is this all happening in one place? Well, and that's the big one. As you said, it only happens in Vancouver. It hasn't happened anywhere around the United States. I mean, you're surrounded by two oceans and a giant Gulf of Mexico. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. We've never heard about it. This seems to be an anomaly in this one area. Although I do believe in the past, was there not one that washed up in Oregon or Washington State just a few years ago? I, I think you're right. You are you're testing my memory again, but I'm pretty sure that one of that that one one foot did wash up in on the shores of of Washington State. Yeah. So in the end, you learn about this. And you start watching this story. What intrigued you about this story to continue to follow it over time? Well, in the beginning, it was just, again, it was just sort of everything about it that intrigued me. The, really, it was, it was the, the fact that like all of these feet were washing over the same area. Like that, That's obviously the most interesting thing about the story. But then when you start considering the the different theories, the different possibilities that could explain this. Um, and, and you can kind of chase each one of those theories down a, down a rabbit hole and talk to different people and talk to oceanographers and criminologists and amateur sleuths. Like they've all got their own idea, uh, about, about, you know, what the, what the, what the answer is. And you can, and as a, as a journalist, it's just, it's really fun to just kind of explore each of those avenues and say, look, could it be this? Could it be a serial killer? Could it be a um, could it be a coincidence? Could they have all been um, you know involved in the same same plane crash? Um, you know, it's 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 a story with a lot of legs, as you would say in uh, in journalism. It's it's mysteries, whodunits are like just about the most intriguing kind of story there is. And let's face it, too, if we talk about murderers row here. You know, as sickening as a topic as that is, Winston, the Pacific Northwest has had its fair share of serial killers. The Pacific Northwest, you know, I think in some ways, you know, I did a story once several years ago on a on a guy named Christian Longo who moved out to Oregon with his family after his business failed in uh, somewhere in the Midwest and he'd been uh, excommunicated from, I'm pretty sure it was the Mormon church. Um, and he kind of moved out to, to Oregon, to the Oregon coast. And he was in this like desperate situation where his family didn't really know how bad his finances had gotten. And he tried to kind of start piecing it together with like working at Starbucks. And it just wasn't, 
wasn't working out for him, and he wound up um, murdering his entire family, his wife and three kids. He he killed his wife and one of his kids in their in their home, I believe, and then he took uh, the other two and and like I want to say he he put them in suitcases and threw them off a bridge. Uh, and it was tragic. It was like a, such a devastating, sad story. But one of the, one of the, I wound up interviewing him on death row years later, uh, which is one of the more fascinating interviews I've ever had. But, uh, but one of the things that I wrote several stories about Christian Longo and, and, um, one of the, one of the kind of theories that people told me about like why these weird things happen on the, you know, in places like the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest is that we, you know, humans, especially like, you, you know, European settlers, like they, they tended to start, you know, we, we set up shop on the East Coast and then we kind of migrated West. And those of us who are like, who are drawn West are often, you know, sort of running in, in one form or another. Like we're trying to get away from something like, Maybe it's just a bunch of people in New York City, but uh, but you know we're we're moving because we we're, we're moving away from something. Maybe some of us are moving to something, but but the point is, we go and we go and we go and we go, and then we hit the hit the ocean. We can't go anymore, and so that's why, according to this this theory, which I think is at least interesting, that's why you wind up with like a collection of strange individuals on the coast because they've just they're just sort of trying to like escape humanity and normalcy and 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 then they run out of room and then they're stuck there and that's why like weird you tend to like have like really weird things happen on on coasts and islands like there's a feeling of just sort of being hemmed in that i think kind of eats away at people somehow and and yeah, we've had quite a quite our fair share of serial killers in Pacific Northwest. Ab- absolutely, and we just did a show a few nights ago on Ted Bundy, and it leads into Gary Ridgway and the Green River Killer. You know, then you come up north, as I said in the introduction, Clifford Olson. We have, you know, the Highway of Tears up here, where there is a serial killer up north here. Nobody knows who it is. 60-some women have died on this highway, and it starts in my town and goes straight up north for about three, 400 kilometers. We have Willie Picton, the most famous of them all here in British Columbia, with what he did with all the drug-addicted yeah. women on the downtown east side and prostitutes. And I can tell you this about that. My now-deceased former sister-in-law, she was a a junkie in downtown Vancouver on the east side, which is considered the most, the poorest part of Canada. And she was telling me after, after Picton got busted, when she was able to sober up for a little bit, she actually told me for three plus years, the girls on the downtown east side were literally begging the police to go to the farm, go to the farm. Hmm. And the Vancouver police never did. Now, I know from James Tyson, who is our weekend host, he actually worked on that case. And and the RCMP knew about it. 
but for some reason they had to give Vancouver police, and I don't understand why, and I'll have to ask James this, but Vancouver police had the, the leading investigation on that, I believe, and they just would not go to the farm. And in the end, that's where body parts of more than 30, 40 women were found. That's interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, sometimes like police, police inaction and behavior is, it seems like it's uh, it's a result of territorialism among different agencies and, you know, taboos that the public doesn't know about and sacred cows and people that people that are in positions of power that the, you know, that, that investigators don't, don't, don't want to touch. I mean, you just, you never really know what's going on. So in your best estimation on this, do you believe that there is a serial killer dropping people in the Georgia Strait near Vancouver? I I couldn't go that far by any means. I I don't have I don't have a great explanation for why all these feet have washed up washed ashore but when i was investigating it um the i mean one of the arguments against there being any foul play or a serial killer or anything involved is that the you know the autopsy results of of most of the feet who um that 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 washed up didn't indicate any like saw marks or you know, signs of trauma or anything like that. Like the, the the feet that were identified and analyzed and studied when I, at least when I was when I was working on this, which was years ago, um, all appeared to have naturally detached from the body. Which does not which does not mean that they weren't you know shot in the head and they fell in the water and then the foot disconnects from the body. But I think a couple of the uh, of the feet that were identified were determined to have been uh, suicides or drownings. Um, and so, so I, I just think until, until there's like some, some connection where like a, you know, a foot or a few feet is, is connected to a missing person whose disappearance was like suspicious. Like, you know, maybe if they were all, the feet of prostitutes or some something that fit a pattern that might suggest that like, they were all like killed by the same person. I don't know that. I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that a serial killer killed all these people, but I, I, you know, most of the serial killers I've ever read about or written about, they, they tend to like have a, have a pattern of victim. They don't just kind of like choose random people and decide to kill them. Like most of them, from what I've ever read, they choose prostitutes because they're serial killers as opposed to mass murder or serial killers. They enjoy the thrill of, of getting away with what they're doing. So they, they want to avoid getting caught as long as they possibly can. And mass murderers on the other hand, they want the they seek the notoriety of having killed a bunch of people at at once. Like they want to, they want to splash. They want their names in the papers, even if they're dead long before, uh, the papers come out. And so that's why serial killers tend to go after prostitutes usually because prostitutes are less likely to be 
be reported missing quickly. They're less likely their deaths are less likely to be investigated. You know, they don't they don't they're less likely to have family members out in the media, you know, pressing for the killer to be caught. And as far as I know, and again, it's been a few years since I, you know, looked at this, but as far as I know, the there hasn't been a, a pattern like that of the of the victims who've been ID'd. And you can correct me with when I'm with if I'm wrong. You may have, you know, done some more recent research. But well, one of the things that I find very interesting is most of the feet that have washed up have washed up in running shoes. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, due to the the technology of running shoes today, I mean, somebody's wearing running shoes on a boat or they're wearing running shoes while walking on the beach, that makes sense. That's not trying to say, well, you know, maybe this person has a, a fetish for, you know, picking up joggers or, or hikers or something along those lines, because let's face it, accidents do happen. But there is a little bit of irony when it does come to the fact that most of the shoes are runners. And as Eric in our chat room, Eric Markham, who is our resident scientist here, it's his birthday today, well, at least on the West Coast. Happy birthday. Uh, Happy birthday, Eric. Thank you. I'll make sure, I'm sure he'll get that. He'll type a thank you. I'll just say thank you for him there. But like he was saying, it's kind of hard to tell if it's suicide or not from a foot. Uh, That's, certainly true though i think that at least in a few cases um they they have done like autopsies and and found enough dna from from at least a few of the missing feet to um to identify the body and the and the person and again you're sort of testing my memory here but i think that at least a few of the early victims were determined to have, were like left a note um, and and it was determined to be suicide. But like, that doesn't account for 20 feet. Um, you know, so. Mm-hmm. No, very understandable. Very understandable indeed. And that's why it goes to show. I mean, not everybody is falling off a boat. And I do know that when I worked in Vancouver, there was a rash of people disappearing out of the blue. I remember one completely. It was a gentleman who is in his early to mid-20s. He was walking across the Burrard Street Bridge, and that's the last anybody ever saw of him. And I believe, if memory serves me correct, years later, one of his feet washed up. But the problem with that was he didn't show any signs of suicide. He wasn't suffering from depression, not on any medication. Very healthy guy, a lot going for him. I believe he was a student at U of, at uh, the University of British Columbia, or he had just graduated from there. And that's what's happening. Vancouver does have a lot of people who just disappear. Yeah, well... The the bottom line is like you often just don't really know uh, why somebody died. Did they fall off a bridge? Were they pushed off a bridge? Did they jump off the bridge? Um, you know, a lot a lot of people who commit suicide. From what I what I know about suicide is that uh, it actually tends to be a a fairly impulsive decision. So you you know 
we have this concept of people who commit suicide as, as like writing out a note and coming up with a plan and, and, you know, figuring out exactly how they're going to do it. But a lot of people make the decision to commit suicide in a very short period of time. And then they go through with it in a very short period of time. So it's, it's, you know, neither here nor there for solving a mystery, but, um, the, the bottom line is like, it's very, it's, you know, if you don't, if you don't know how somebody died, then you don't know how somebody died and you can't, you know, you can't just make an assumption that they all, that they all died of suicide. And you also can't, you know, the thing, the thing that I keep coming back to is sort of why, why Vancouver, why British Columbia? Like, why, why are we reading about this happening all over the world? And I would agree with you that it, you know, because of that, it, it just seems very, very strange in regards to that. Now, Vancouver, though, being a mecca of transport to and from the Orient and other parts of Eastern Asia, it does have a large crime syndicate. It does have Chinese gangs. It does have Greek gangs, Italian gangs, mafia. The Hells Angels and the drug trade are massive in Vancouver, along with, you know, trading British Columbia marijuana for cocaine, hash, heroin from other countries. Do you think that there is a lot of this dealing with the drug trafficking and the illegal hijinks of being a port city. Well, let me say this about that. The, if you think that everybody who ever gets killed, that they, that we hear about it and that their murder gets solved and the killer gets justice, then, you know, you don't, you don't know anything about the way the world works. And especially in the criminal underworld, there are lots of people who are drug dealers and drug traffickers and, and criminals of like all origins who are just kind of floating around. Like they've, they've disconnected from their friends and family. They're, you know, they're just like doing what they're doing. And if, if you're in that scene and you get, um, you get killed by a crime boss or a, uh, a, you know, fellow drug trafficker or something. It's entirely possible that nobody investigates your murder, um, and nobody nobody hears about it. So, you know, to the extent that that it's a it's a port city and there's a lot of drug traffickers. I mean, there's just a lot that goes on in the criminal underworld that, that we don't ever hear about, you know, and that's, that's an entirely plausible explanation that these are just like, they're just a bunch of criminals who are getting dumped over, over drug trafficking boats. And I mean, one, one of the things that does to a degree explain the, the, the regional uh, elements of the story is that, you have a particular set of uh, recirculating ocean currents up there that um, that tend to kind of keep things where they are. So, like, if if I 
if I jump off a bridge in Oregon, uh, the likelihood is that, at least if it's a coastal bridge, of course, uh, likelihood is my foot is going to wash way out into the Pacific and it's going to get carried up by the Gulf Stream, whichever direction it's going at the time. My understanding is that there's a, in the winter it moves north and in the summer it switches back and goes and goes to the south. And so those feet are going to be distributed all over the place. They may never show up again. You know, they may just be out deep into the sea floating in the big, you know, trash pile in the middle of a, in the middle of the Atlantic. And eventually they, they will decompose. I mean, it's human, human flesh, human bones, et cetera. But, uh, up there in British Columbia, you, you know, as I understood it from talking to oceanographers back when I was reporting the story, you do, you do have at least an increased likelihood that it's, you know, a body falls into the water in several different places that it, it, it doesn't get swept out into the middle of the ocean and disappears. It's, you have these kind of recirculating currents up there that kind of keep, keep things all in a, in a regional area. So, you know, there is some explanation for why, why up there, but it's still, it's still a lot of feet and it can't be the only place in the world that has recirculating currents. Right. So, you know, do with that what you will. There have been a lot of experts look into this case and of course, the whole suicide thing or the whole accident, people falling off of boats or the ferry system or something along those lines, it makes for an easy, easy story. What do you think, and I realize this is a hypothetical question, but what do you think the chances that the Canadian police are covering up potentially another serial killer? Well, it's, it, of course, that's a, like it's a tough question to speculate on, but but I will say it's you have to if if you're gonna like explore a theory like that, then then you got to examine the motives for it, right? So why why do they do that? Do they do it because they're embarrassed because they haven't caught a serial killer yet? I I think that's sort of unlikely because. If, because I, I mean, I think, you know, say what you will about police and police officers. And we've had a lot of like trouble with police in the States in the last several years. And everybody's got a different opinion about, you know, about them. But I think most of them like want to solve crime and keep people from getting hurt and, uh, and, and do a good job. And if they, I have to believe, or at least I want, I certainly want to believe that if they feel like there's a good chance that there's a serial killer on the loose, they want the public to know about it so they can help, they can, you know, catch him and bring him to justice and hopefully nobody gets killed anymore. Like, you know, to suggest that they're covering up a serial killer, you got to, I think to get me convinced of that, you've got to tell me why, why they do that. And that is the big question. Why have they continually brought together the scientific aspect? And I would like to know how a scientist proves, or a doctor can prove, or a pathologist can prove, how just by a foot that has been wrecked in the water by the elements 
can tell you whether or not the person committed suicide or not. That baffles well, that's me. Why, I mean, yeah, that's why the case remains a mystery, right? Like if they could, if they could prove a cause of death from a foot, then we would know the answer to this already. You know, this would be, there wouldn't be any room to speculate anymore because they would either have all been ruled suicides or half of them would have been ruled suicides and half homicides or whatever. Like you, you just can't, uh, as you say, you know, you can't get a definitive answer from a, from a foot. The only thing you can do is try to identify the foot and then go back and figure out if you can, if the death is explained somewhere. Like, you know, maybe you identify the foot and then you find out that, you know, there's a, there's a, um, a guy who wrote a suicide note and, you know, was seen jumping off a bridge and then you know that guy committed suicide. But that's the only way. And as far as I know, um, they haven't, you know, pinned down the, that kind of information for more than a handful of these, you know. We are close to coming up to our first break here, Winston, so I'm going to get you to hold on for a bit. And I want to say thanks to Deb at Hashtag Spaced Out Radio. She has actually posted some of the feet that had washed up here. And August 20th, 2007, a male right foot, uh, Jedediah Island, August 26th, 2008, a right foot of a male in Gabriola Island, then February 2nd, 2008, another right foot, this time on Valdez Island, wearing a Nike shoe. We'll learn more about that right after this. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio. Our guest, Winston Ross, Vancouver's missing feet is the topic of the night. We'll be right back. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. The third Monday of every month, Spaced Out Radio is going to bring you a different look at everything paranormal. Welcome to The Reporters. Jim Mallard, Vanessa Hogle, Denise Garcia, and Christina George join me, Dave Scott, for a look at the weird and strange from the other side of the microphone. We'll break down ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and the people investigating them. The paranormal media has never been heard like this. Come listen to The Reporters. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter Online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. 
Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy on your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sight Lines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sight lines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I, Vincent Zunza, and my super sleuth partner, Alexandra Sullivan, track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest. From Bigfoot to Mel's Hole and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock. Loud and proud. In high definition. Radio 702 Rocks. Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up. Enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. 
For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag Spaced Out Radio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to the second hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us. Tomorrow night, it's the first Friday of the month, which means our Keith Andrews is back. The ET Connection gets going at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time for all of your alien needs at spaceoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone listening in on WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. Love being your nighttime entertainment. We're also live on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world on the United Public Radio Network. We're live on KTLK, The Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell still on the injured reserve when it comes to the password, so Joel Allgaier is setting the password for tonight's SOR Space Travelers Club. Podiatrist. Podiatrist is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, Space Travelers, as Joe is set the password for tonight. Hopefully we get a big mention out of that one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Also use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to be able to connect with us live during the show. You can give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player.fm, and Stitcher. And our website is SpacedOutRadio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month. You can also read up on our brand new news section, The Encounter Online. we got some great stories, a new one up there from Preston Dennett, I believe. Yes, he's been a guest on this show. And so much more. You can also go to Patreon.com for as low as a dollar a month. You can also become a patron of Spaced Out Radios. Tonight we're talking about a mystery in Vancouver, British Columbia. Missing feet that have washed up in running shoes and other shoes on shore. Our guest tonight is Winston Ross. He is a contributing writer to Newsweek magazine. Winston, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here. I want to start off this second hour with some questions from our audience, if you don't mind. And this one comes from Ron. And he is asking, Winston, do you know if they've ever attempted to do a drop test off one of the bridges to see how the currents affect the remains travel? As far as I know, that has never happened. And that's a great question. I think that would be a fascinating thing to do. It would probably be the purview of, uh, of, of a scientist or a researcher or maybe a college student uh, just to see it. You know, like, I, I think it'd be interesting to go go to each of the locations where feet have been found and try to, you know, find a nearby bridge and 
yeah, drop something similar size and weight, maybe even encased in a running shoe, and track it because um, obviously we have the capability of doing that. I I would I, I would be surprised if any investigative agency devotes any amount of resources to that, just because I think that investigators are either covering up a serial killer, as you as you suggested as possible, or they just believe that this is a, a series of coincidences and it's not worth, um, you know, trying to marshal a bunch of resources to do. At SpaceOradio.com's chat room for this show, Everett is asking a pair of questions. Number one, how many feet, to your knowledge, have been found, and are they all from the same side? Most of the feet that had been found when I last reported on this were right feet. Um, I, I haven't looked into this in several years. I understand the number is up above 20 now. I think that's what you reported at the outset of the show, Dave. Um, but when I looked at it, most of the, I think it was a dozen or so, or maybe eight or nine feet, most of them were right feet, uh, which is interesting. The, the only left foot that had been found when I, I, I wrote two sort of fairly well-researched stories on this, one for Newsweek in 2008 and another for the Daily Beast in 2011. And in those two stories, the only left foot that had been found uh, matched one of the right feet. Um, so, yeah, it was like eight, eight right feet. And Everett's second question, do we know if all the feet have been from people of the same race? I don't know that. Um, I've never seen any anything that, that indicated the, the race of the, of the feet. Oh. Let's go to hashtag Spaced Out Radio on Twitter. John is asking, do we know if they were all men's feet? Uh, that's another good question. Let me think about that for just a second. I, I'm pretty sure it was not, it was definitely not just men's feet. Um, I'm going to um, scan as we talk about something else, but I'm pretty sure at least one or two of the early discoveries were um, were women. And, of course, John, being American, has to ask the question, why, if it's happening in Canada, are none of the feet happy, are coming out in hockey skates? Well, not everybody plays hockey in Vancouver. The weather's a little that's, wet. That's a great question. The weather's hockey a little wet. Too would, yeah, and hockey skates would sink because they got metal on them. Exactly. Exactly my thoughts. Let's get to another question here. This one comes from Ron. And he's saying, Winston, do you believe it would be possible that it's human smugglers disposing of bodies at sea that don't make it traveling across the ocean? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's possible in the same way that, you know, these being um, people connected to some kind of crime, you know, criminal activity, it's also possible. Like, I think that you got to realize, first of all, it's important to, important to understand that people do go missing, and hundreds of people go missing every year, and 
you know, if you if you if you boil it down to ten or twenty feet out of hundreds that go missing, it's not that crazy that some of those people might have wound up in the water somehow. Either they they jumped and didn't tell anybody about it, they fell in, they were pushed, they were murdered, like maybe it's some combination of all these things. And, you know, the twenty feet represents a small percentage of the people who who went missing. But you know, if we're if we're kind of returning to this question that we explored at the beginning of the hour, which is like why why this region? Why British Columbia? Why up around Vancouver? Then I think you have you know, you at least have a a reason to consider the plausibility of some of these um some of these more nefarious um you know, theories, and I think that um, the human, the, the answer to like the plausibility of the human smuggling theory is similar to the answer of it being a, a serial killer or a, um, or, you know, people who are victims of, uh, of some kind of crime syndicate. Like a lot of those, a lot of the, I mean, the, the reason like serial killers are often able to operate for periods of 5, 10, 15, 20 years is because they often target prostitutes and people who are who are kind of already disappeared from society. So if they die, um, nobody goes looking for them. Or even if they die and somebody figures out that they're gone, like there's just not enough. You know, if if, if somebody from a well-to-do family in in the United States goes missing, then there's a big hunt for where they are and the body and the murderer. Um, but when it comes to the criminal underground, when it comes to human smuggling, there are a lot of people out there who are just, who are just kind of off the grid and off the radar. And when those people die, uh, there, there aren't big, you know, investigations that mount. So it's entirely possible that sure. Human smugglers. Sure. Like, Crime, crime, criminals on boats. Sure, maybe even a serial killer. Though I'm, I'm less convinced that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Robert White actually has posted a known woman's left foot in a shoe that was found floating in the Fraser River in Richmond, British Columbia. The shoe was described as a small New Balance running shoe, possibly a woman's shoe. A forensic DNA profiling analysis indicated that it was a genetic match to the foot discovered on May 22nd on Kirkland Island. So there have been matching feet actually found. Yeah, that's what I was referring to earlier, the I, when I when I did the second story, I think they had you know when I did the first story in 2008, there had been very little time to like start identifying these feet, and you know, it takes a while to you know run run samples, and I'm sure these were not considered to be like pressing high priority rush jobs. So by the time I returned to the subject in 2011. Um, they had done some more, some more research and started to identify. And the only left foot that had been found at that point was a match to a right. And as your, uh, as your listener pointed out, uh, it was a woman. Bob is asking, did any of the feet to your knowledge have tattoos or missing digits? I don't believe any of them had 
missing digits. I don't know anything about tattoos, but as far as I understand, these feet were all these feet have all been pretty well preserved, kind of mummified by the running shoes, which is you know arguably why they they were found. You didn't find hands, you didn't find elbows, you didn't find shoulders because there's nothing to protect them. They just they just separate and then you know disappear out in the water and they're not you know they don't have any vessel to carry them up on the shore was there any pattern in the age of these people who were identified not that i not that i uh found in my research as, as far as i as far as i could see their ages were those those who were identified uh, were all over the map in terms of age. Mm-hmm. Get to a question from Ron here. They have recovered viable DNA matches. Has it ever been brought to the public what that DNA signifies? I'm not sure I understand that question. Well, just in regards to the DNA, in order to create matches to see who those feet belong to. Well, all I know is that the DNA, I'm not sure I'm answering the question, but I, all I know is that, you know, they've, they've recovered some DNA in order to be able to identify, you know, who the feet belong to, and then... Um, and and just to link them to their owners, and then compare, and then compare them to DNA evidence submitted by you know families. Um, so you know, in in a couple of cases, they found that they, they've gone and you know used DNA to like identify victims and talk to family members and found out like what the circumstances of their lives were. You know, several of them were described as unhappy and they were distressed and, and some were even described as like heading toward the water when they were last seen. Uh, a couple were found to be suffering from mental illness, which could mean that, you know, they, they accidentally fell into the water or, you know, um, did something, yeah, did something that, that caused them to accidentally drown. Um, but I don't know a ton about the DNA other than that. I mean, again, I don't, I don't believe that there's been um, a great deal of forensic analysis here because I think that every, every time I've read a story about this and, and in the two stories I've written, investigators, in, in the first story, investigators were like, we're, you know, we're checking this out. We're going to, we're going to try to get some answers. You know, we're keeping our, we're keeping our, minds open right now, but um, in the second story, most of the people in law enforcement were at least publicly um, sort of convinced that there was no there was no foul play here. So that's not going to prompt them to, you know, do a bunch of DNA analysis. It costs money. For sure. Absolutely. How many times did you get a chance to travel to Vancouver? in regards to this story? I did not travel to Vancouver once for this story. I've been to Vancouver many times, though. It's a lovely city. 
Mm-hmm. So you know, being to Vancouver a number of times, for people who haven't been there, what would you describe about the city in regards to its waterways and where it's located? Well, it's uh, it's it's um, it's got great access to water. There's there's the it's a that's one of the beautiful things about Vancouver is that uh, you're gonna stump me on the, on the actual geography of Vancouver, but I know that it's like uh, I know that it's uh, it's got great great access to the water. Like you you know the answer to this better than me, so maybe you should help me out here. <laughs> Well, you're right, and, and the major flow comes off of a couple of major rivers, and that would be the Fraser River, and there is the, oh, why is the name escaping me right now? My goodness, it's terrible. they got a good fishing run there, too. Capilano River, thank you. And, uh, you, know, and you know, Vancouver literally is surrounded by water. It really is. Right. And the entire coastline runs right through it. And, you know, you're only about 40 miles, 50 miles from Vancouver Island, if that, which is surrounded by the Georgia Strait and the Juan de Fuca Strait. So there's a lot of things in that water. You know, I mean, when you think about it, it there's, looks, a, there's a lot of sea life, too. Yeah. It looks like you're the Pacific comes in and dumps into English Bay there, is that right? And then got Vancouver Harbor on the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a major shipping route for oil, for any types of vehicles coming over from Asia, any type of products coming over from Asia and vice versa. Cruise lines, military, everybody seems to port in Vancouver anytime they get an opportunity to do so and face it. Vancouver is a beautiful city. I'm not just saying that because I've been there thousands of times. But, I mean, when you look at it, you have a beautiful, clean city on a mountainous backdrop that's usually covered with snow-capped mountains. It's one of the only places in the world where you can literally go golfing in the morning, fishing in the afternoon, and skiing at night. It's a great place. Like now you're making, me want to move. you're making me want to move to Vancouver now. Well, Portland's not that bad. Portland's, Portland's also a lovely city. It yeah. is. It's very beautiful. I think you've got you've got friendlier people up in up in Vancouver just because Canadians are are nicer than Americans. So got that going for you. Oh, uh, I apologize for that. I apologize for that. <laughs> but if you, it is interesting when you look at. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things that oceanographers told me when I when I uh, was reporting these stories years ago is that. If you just look at a map, obviously you've got Vancouver itself surrounded by water, but then, you know, this this waterway goes all the way up into Indian Arm and, you know, Iron Bay up toward Wigwam Inn, and it's all kind of like, it's all pretty, waterways all are all pretty tight, like if you look at them on a map. Like, it, there's not like a, a big open in and out kind of throughput where things could flow and move in and get out. So, you know, this lends some, just looking at a map, like lends some credence to the theory that it's a place that could be particularly adept at like trapping, you know, debris 
and tennis shoe-clad feet. And that part of the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Strait of Georgia is very deep as well. Because, I mean, let's face it, there is a mountainous rock that continues up the mountains, and Vancouver is basically built at the top of a mountain. The rest of it's just underneath water. And with the depths of that, and then you combine that with the sea life that is in there, from from whales to sharks to all sorts of crustaceans and, and other fauna that feeds in the ocean, it's easy for anybody's body that gets stuck in the currents or stuck under rocks or against whatever that's underneath the water, it's easy for these bodies to be decomposed very, very quickly. So it's easy for these feet to all of a sudden leave their body, lack of a better term. Yeah, that makes sense to me. When it comes to the victims... Did you ever get a chance to talk to any of the victims' families or friends? I I I am just going to check quickly, but I think I did talk to yeah I I spoke to a woman named Kirsten Stevens um, who was from Campbell River uh, back when I did it. Uh, the first story on this in Newsweek and she was uh, a relative of a a, um, a British Columbian named Dave Stevens who um, who had uh, died in a plane crash actually in 2005 this flip plane went down in the uh, right after it took off in the Campbell River, killing the pilot and four passengers involved, and she, or aboard, and she, um, she was, she told me at the time that she couldn't rule out a connection to the crash. I believe that they later did rule out two, at least two of the crash victims, because the DNA wasn't a match, and a spokeswoman for the RCMP, the Royal Canadian uh, man of police said that uh, she thought it was very unlikely that the other feet belonged to victims of the crash. So, so I, Kristen was not, let me answer your question, like a, um, a relative of one of the victims of the feet, but she was, but there was, there was definitely this hope for a while that, um, that maybe this, or, or this theory, anyway, that maybe uh, maybe some of the feet could belong to people who died in that in that crash. I don't, I don't think I ever spoke with. The thing is, like they never. I don't believe that any of the names of the owners of the feet have been released to the public because you know, in general, like if there, there are some privacy issues involved, right? Like. If someone's if someone's murdered, their name often is often made public in the course of an investigation because the police is asking for help in solving the investigation, and so they you know they say this person was murdered, and this is their name. Anybody who knew them, you know, could you contact us and tell us if they had any enemies and so on and so forth. But when when someone just dies um, and 
there's no cause of death determined that might lead police to suspect foul play. And they don't really have any reason to release their names to the media and say, I mean, even in this case, like, it became really fascinating, right? So, so like, there's some public interest there, but it's just kind of like a, it's more of a curiosity than a, than something that uh, investigators would actually find useful to, to disseminate these names. So as far as I know, I've never seen names of any of these victims published. Um, mm-hmm. As a result, I never talked to any of their family members and neither has anyone else, as far mm-hmm. as I know. I want to go through the timeline of this because the first one washed up on August 20th, 2007. That was on Jedediah Island in British Columbia. Six days later, on Gabriola Island, which isn't too far off, is when the next one was found. And then we have to go to February 2008 on Valdez Island before the next foot was found. May 22nd of 2008 was a woman's right foot that was found. A man's left foot was found by two hikers floating in the water in Delta, British Columbia, on Westham Island, June 16th. August 1st, near Pisht, Washington, a right foot of inside a man's black size 11 shoe was discovered by a camper on the beach. That came right along the border with the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And moving on. November 11th, 2008... In Richmond, British Columbia, a known woman's left foot was found, so that would be the matching one, I believe, to the woman's foot that was found before. Then we go to 2009, almost another year. In Richmond, British Columbia, a right foot, size 8.5 Nike running shoe, was found on a beach. It was a Vancouver area man that was reported missing in January 2008. Apparently, they were able to tell he died of natural causes, that doesn't really make sense to me. And then we have to go another nine months at Whitby Island, Washington, then December 5th of 2010 in Tacoma, Washington, where the right foot of a, a still inside a boy's size six Ozark trail hiking boot was found. And then we go to 2011. There were three found in 2011, one in False Creek in British Columbia. That's right in Vancouver, right in the main harbor. Sassamat Lake on November 4th, and then December 10th, back down in Seattle, Washington, Lake Union, where a human leg bone and foot in a black plastic bag were found under a ship canal bridge. And then we go to only one in 2012. That happened in January 26th. And it looks like human bones were found inside us, inside the sand along the water line in a shoe, of course. That was in Vancouver. Back to Seattle, two years later almost, over two years later, where a human foot in a white New Balance shoe was found along the shorelines of Centennial Park near the Pier 86 grain terminal. And then nothing for almost two years. February 7th on Vancouver Island at the Botanical Beach near Port Renfrew. Found a foot in a sock in a running shoe. And then five days later, February 12th, a foot washed up near Port Renfrew again that matched the one that was found earlier. So 
it's a strange timeline that seems to have a very strong pattern between August of 2007 and November of 2008, and then all of a sudden it slows down down again. And granted, like we talked in our number one, Winston, that could be just coincidence because people were playing it safe or not, you know, their bodies weren't going that missing. But to have so many in such a short span, does does that set off as a journalist a red flag for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, I think that there there are, there are people who find who find a lot of suspicion in the concept of of coincidence, and there are other people who just see coincidence as the natural part of life. And I think the way you sort of approach some of these questions about the timing um, really depend on how you how you regard coincidence. Do you approach it suspiciously? Do you think like there's no such thing as a coincidence? Everything everything is connected, everything has a meaning, everything has an explanation, or do you just kind of shrug your shoulders every time you come across a coincidence and say, eh, whatever, it's a coincidence. That happens. Um, I, I, I'm spitballing here, but I, I think that the timing, what I would say about the timing, uh, these kind of clusters of discoveries, a couple of things. One is, um, the, you know, weather patterns are cyclical and seasonal and it's, um, it's entirely possible that some, you know, circulation of the ocean that's happening in one particular year is just operates such that um, that it it traps more of these. So, so, like, say say there are feet bobbing around in oceans all over the world, like let's let's just like adopt that premise for a moment um and really the question is like what causes them to be discovered what causes them to all wash up in the same place and some of the oceanographers i interviewed back when i was reporting the story suggest that you know it's the particular currents and the particular oceanography of, of that region that that is to be you know is the explanation so by the same logic then maybe there are particular years where those currents are are you know acting in such a way as to to keep these to keep more feet in the same place. Um, that's that's one plausible explanation. Another, if you're more of a you know if you're if you don't if you don't believe that if you don't believe in coincidence if you think there's a cover up of a serial killer or or if it's, you know there's something more nefarious going on then. You could postulate that somebody dumped a bunch of feet from somebody dumped a bunch of bodies all at once from you know a, a rash of killings or and and that's why they were discovered around the same time or maybe if you're if you're a serial killer and you killed ten people over the span of you know six years you killed the first few and then uh and then you slowed down and you killed another one two years later and another one two years after that like and then the other the other theory that um 
I came across when I was reporting the story is the sort of the, the kind of media frenzy theory that that this became such a a well known you know epidemic up there, and it was I mean the story was generating international media attention. So if you if you before all of this news broke tended to just kind of walk down the beach and look out at the ocean or, you know, talk to your wife that you're walking on the beach with and not, and and just like enjoy your life. Once these stories all broke and once this became like a national an international phenomenon, you go down to the beach and you're looking for feet at that point. And so you, so, you know, one of the theories that was put to me back when I was reporting this is maybe more of these feet are being found in this particular period of time just because there's a ton of attention about it. And everybody's like, wow, what's the deal with all these feet? And they're just, they're just looking for them more. So which one of those theories is right? It's sort of, I mean, that's, that's the mystery. That's the, that's the fun. One of our listeners, Ron, brings up an interesting point. He says, and he forms it in a question for you, Winston, he says, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco is renowned for suicides. Have body parts ever appeared on their shores? Yeah, that goes back to um, to one of the questions we we dealt with at the, at the you know, in the first hour, which is, if this is a series of coincidence. If it all, if it can all be just explained by, you know, people dying and some some people committing suicide or you know falling or whatever, why are so many showing up in this one region? Like, what what explains that? I mean, if you look at the, you're right. He's, your listeners right that the Golden Gate Bridge is, is a um, a very popular place to commit suicide. But if you look at a map of that particular um, bridge and where it sits, it's at the edge of, it's at the end of the, of the San Francisco Bay. And so you're, it's right there at the, at the Pacific Ocean. And I'm not an expert on the, on the, you know, way currents work there, but if you just look at a map of the water around San Francisco and you compare it to a map of the water around Vancouver, it's much more of a kind of like open, you know, free flowing environment, especially if you're, you know, especially if you're right there at the, at the end of the bay, like right where the bay meets the Pacific, like it's much more plausible as far as I'm concerned. And I'm, again, I'm like armchair oceanographer at this point, um, that you jump off the San Francisco bridge, you die, even if you're wearing tennis shoes, your body, your shoes, everything gets washed out in the Pacific and is never discovered. Like that makes sense to me. And once again, there are a lot of predators in the water. Yeah, maybe maybe in San Francisco they've got predators that like to kiss the tennis shoes. Well, I wonder if they're sponsored. Nike, New Balance. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a few moments ago that this is a story that really 
created a lot of media attention and to this day people are still waiting for more feet to wash up so they can report on it why do you think a story like this caught such an international flavor well i think that uh let's let's face it it's sad but true that people die every day people are killed every day um you know bad things happen in the world and most mostly they tend to happen in predictable ways you know you you die of a heart attack or cancer or even murders like mostly mostly they get solved mostly it's it's the victim's you know, ex-husband, ex-boyfriend, um, and and to be blunt about it, uh, the more kind of common the case is, the less likely people are going to be to be intrigued by it, right? So this is obviously special to have. It's just kind of gory, you know. Like, can you imagine walking down the beach one day and looking over and seeing a human foot? encased in a tennis shoe like and then and then you pick it up and you call the cops and you say hey i found a foot here and and uh and you come to realize that it's one of 11 that have washed up in the same 100 mile radius in the last two years like it's just that's weird i mean no matter how many ways you slice it no matter how many plausible explanations for it there are it's weird and we're interested in weird things. I mean, that's, that's it's the nature of being alive. Did you ever get a chance to talk to any professionals, like university scientists or anybody about that? About the psychology of it? The psychology or the decomposition? I did talk to some, to, to some, well, for, so for example, I talked to, in 2011, I interviewed, by that point, 11 different feet, a mixture of, uh, of, of right and left, had all uh, washed up within 125 miles um, of each other. And some of them had been uh, investigated, and there had been, I don't know if they call it an autopsy, when it's just a foot, but some of them had been autopsy for lack of a more precise word and I did speak at the time with the Vancouver City Coroner Stephen Fonseca who said there's no evidence of mechanical dis- disarticulation so they weren't sawed off they weren't chewed off they weren't pulled off they just drifted away from their bodies um, and I'm pretty sure that that's basically all they were looking at you know they were just looking for indications of foul play on the feet themselves, because without that, you don't have, again, it's a resources question, right? Like you don't have the, you don't have some indication that the person's been murdered. Then you can't, you know, go to your boss and ultimately go to taxpayers and say, Hey, we'd like to, you know, investigate this. Like if it's, if there's no sign of foul play, there's no sign of foul play. So it's my understanding that they basically stopped there. Like some of them again have done like DNA tests 
um, and tried to like identify who the foot, foot belonged to and maybe talk to some of the owners. But, um, but yeah, I talked to that guy, the coroner. I talked to, um, uh, a forensics consultant, former Toronto police detective who, who was sort of more in that on the, um, conspiracy theorist side of, of things, like more, more suspicious, more asking questions. Um, I talked to some, some oceanographers. I, I obtained a report from the coroner of the province of British Columbia saying that, uh, at least in one of the cases, there was no evidence of foul play that this guy had a history of mental illness and that he was drawn before he left his home in, in Surrey on, in April 2007, um, and then I interviewed a, a couple of, um, I interviewed a criminologist at, at Simon Fraser University who, who suspected suicide, and just, she was pointing out that Vancouver has a lot of bridges, and that that's a popular way to kill yourself, is to jump off the bridge, um, and then, the, but as far as, like, scientists, I... I just talked to a couple of oceanographers, I think, for both stories to talk about, like, the currents, basically, and why currents in that region might be more likely to trap feet. John at Hashtag Spaced Out Radio on Twitter is asking, so the feet came off when the ankle cartilage and tendons were eaten or decomposed? Were there any cases of leg bones being attached? Not that I know of. There were no, there were no, yeah, full leg bones being attached. My, my understanding of what you can expect to happen when a body, you know, falls into the ocean is that the, the parts will just naturally kind of separate from each other. And there wasn't, again, from the, from the feet that were identified um, and analyzed when I came along and was doing this reporting, that coroner who told me there was no evidence of mechanical disarticulation, he's talking there about um, about feet being chewed off as well. Like that's, so, so the idea is that basically all of these feet, just at least the ones I, I looked at, had separated from the rest of their the rest of the body naturally, and it makes sense. And none of them, in answer to the question, like none of them were still attached to a leg, um, and that makes sense to me. Like I don't I don't think it's possible for a foot and a leg to remain um, to remain together after a certain period of time in the ocean. Like it just you know, it's just what happens. Like when, when you die and it's not like blood, you know, pumping through all these vessels and keeping these things together, they just pull apart. Like just how it goes. The victims are from all over the place. We know that we know they're men, there's women, there's been children's feet washed up and, you know, a child, you, you hope that that, that is an accident that has happened. But when you look at everything in the way the investigation was conducted, do you think that whether it's police or science are missing anything to put these clues together? Because one of the ideas that I read 
and this came from university entomologist from Simon Fraser University here in British Columbia, Gail Anderson. She said, finding feet and not the rest of the bodies has been deemed very unusual in this case. Are you surprised that no other parts of these bodies have been found? Well, I I don't I mean, listen, I think it's I think it's absolutely fair to say that it's unusual. The reason we're on the phone, the reason I wrote these stories is because it's unusual. But I also don't think it's implausible that you would find feet and not other body parts. And the reason for that is because they're encased in tennis shoes, which preserve and mummify them and also cause them to be buoyant and float and wind up on shore in a way that a hand or a, an elbow wouldn't. It would sink or just break, break apart into such small pieces that, um, that you would never find it. But, you know, in answer to the question, like, you know, to what extent have investigators tried to determine that, you know, like to come up with answers to these questions or like explore more deeply, you know, the answer to that question, like why haven't other body parts been found? I think it's just, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but I just don't think, I think that investigators, until you give them a reason to suspect foul play, until you give them a reason to suspect a, a connection, a serial killer, they're just not going to spend the resources to get, to get into it very deeply. Or, you know, if you're, if you're of the mind that there, that there's a cover up, then, and they're covering it up and maybe they have investigated and they just don't want to tell anybody what the results of the investigation are. I'm, I'm probably, I would lean more into the former camps in that case. So once again, I do want to explain the university entomologist, Gail Anderson also expressed this decomposition may separate the foot from body because the ankle is relatively weak and the buoyancy caused by air either inside or trapped within a shoe would allow it to float away after it has detached from the body with the body decomposition in the water. So that part scientifically makes sense. And I think you would agree with that. But once again, to, to reiterate the timelines that we've read off, it just doesn't make full sense that the police aren't even looking for a killer, or maybe they are, and they just don't want us to know about it to keep the panic down from the public. Yeah, I, I, I mean, again, I think anything's possible. I think that that's a possible scenario, but I also don't think that... I, I don't think that's really... I don't think we've seen a lot of examples of police, you know, keeping information about a killer on the loose from the public because they don't want to create a panic. I think in general, when like history bears out that when police identify a, that there's a killer on the loose and on the loose and that the public is in danger, they alert the public and release sketches of a, murder suspect and, you know, go on a manhunt and do an investigation because like, that's their, 
that's their job. If you're if you're suggesting that police are trying to avoid creating a panic, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, what? If, why don't police want to create a panic? Like, is it because they think people will run around in the streets and riot and create mayhem? Like, what? What's the harm in people being afraid that there's a killer on the loose? Like, that's just. I mean, we we've had many many cases throughout history of of a, of a serial killer being identified and then sought out and then you know and then looked for for years until they're caught and there's no I mean to my knowledge there's no like there's no real negative consequence of of having that period of a, a year or two where everybody knows there's a serial killer out there and it's scary but you know, you still tell people because you want them to help catch the guy. You want them to stop the killer. Like, I, I, I just don't really see the logic for covering it up to keep the public from panicking. Like, unless they're going to riot, unless they're going to burn down buildings, you know, start shooting suspects in the street, you don't really, there's no argument for that. One of the theories in regards to this is that during the Asian tsunami on December 26, 2004, that many of the feet that washed up in the Vancouver area were actually brought over from Asia Pacific. Now, we're not talking about the Fukushima one. We're talking about 2004. And one investigator actually proposing this position basically said a lot of the shoes were sold in 2004 or earlier. Do you buy that theory? I think it's possible, but I also am, I don't recall any of the victims being identified as, as Japanese. So as far as I understood it, the victims who were identified were all from the region. And I'm only talking about, I, I only heard of a handful of them actually being being identified. But the ones that were identified were not from Japan, as far as I know. Well, I so, do Yeah, sorry, go ahead, please. So, you know, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting theory that maybe they washed over from... from um, from Japan, from the tsunami, I think that based on the very little I know about ocean currents, uh, it seems much more likely that these feet are all, these feet all were dropped into the water, either attached to their bodies or not, uh, in a more local area, and then recirculated locally, stayed locally, washed up on a beach locally. Like, it seems much more plausible that that they all came from around Vancouver than that they traveled all the way across the ocean and just happened to wind up in, in and around Vancouver. We only got a couple of minutes before we have to go to break here, but I do want to mention something about that and that theory. Vancouver along with a lot of places on the West Coast, British Columbia from Alaska all the way down to California, has and still is being hit by debris 
from the 2011 tsunami in Japan. There's been Harley-Davidson motorcycles come across, boats come across. I know in one of the rivers I used to fish, there was actually a piece of metal that tested positive for nuclear radiation on that, which from that point on, I actually stopped taking fish out of the river because, yeah, uh, you know, so there is yeah. track record of that. For sure, and I don't. I certainly don't mean to suggest that it's not possible for things to float all the way across the ocean. Because I, I, I was writing about the coast uh, after that um, 2004 tsunami and after Fukushima, and uh, things absolutely did wash up on our beaches that were like clearly from Japan. They had Japanese writing. There were Japanese floats. Like all kinds of stuff. Um, I'm just saying when it comes to like, you know, this collection of sneakers, feet clad in sneakers, um, you know, I, I, it just seems like it's more likely, it's more plausible that they all, you know, based on what we know about the currents up there, that they all, you know, they're all from the region and that they, you know, they kind of recirculated or maybe they're not from the region. Maybe they were on a boat that was in the region, but, um, you know, that's just, I mean, any of these things are possible, right? Um, it's just, we're, we're all kind of sleuthing and guessing and speculating, and that's what's, that's what's interesting about it. We got less than a minute here before we have to head off for break. So, Winston, I'm going to get you to hold on for just a couple of minutes here. Because we got to take our final break of the night on the mighty SOR. Winston Ross is our guest tonight. He's a contributing writer to Newsweek magazine. We are talking about the missing feet that are washing up in Vancouver all the way down to Tacoma, Washington. It's an interesting story indeed. we got to make sure that we get to it for one more hour here on Spaced Out Radio. During the break, make sure you check out spacedoutradio.com for a plethora of really cool offers and sites to check out. We will be back with more Spaced Out Radio right after this. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, Head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines. Your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Wachowski, lead investigator with Cop. On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries, so tune in 
at spacedoutradio.com through the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have, questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top-quality paranormal stories, from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter, online, only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio or our website, including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? 
strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between. Hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along for the ride with us. Tomorrow night on the program, we get back into the extraterrestrial realm. I know they're going to be loving this down in Florida because it's party night, the first Friday night of the month at K.J. Gandy's house. Our Keith Andrews will be back. The E.T. Connection, the first Friday of every month as we talk everything extraterrestrial with Keith starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern Time at SpacedOutRadio.com. Hey, we want to welcome in everyone listening in in Noonan, Georgia on WQEE 99. Rock the key. Good to have you with us. If you are enjoying the late night with us, thank you so much. In New Orleans on 107.7 FM, the United Public Radio Network, we are also spread across 160 countries around the world. We're live in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio. Down in Arkansas, Joe Roop has us cranked up on KTLK, the Fringe FM. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate to get, to, donate today. Got a little tongue-tied there. Joe Allgaier has set the password for the SOR Space Travelers Club tonight because Bill Cardwell is on the injured reserve. Podiatrist. Podiatrist is your password for tonight, so make sure you use it wisely, Space Travelers, as the password is set each and every night right here on the mighty S-O-R. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with me live during the show as well. You can give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player.fm, and Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com where we have a plethora of features for you, including 
joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for as little as five bucks a month. Read up on the encounter online. Our news section put together by our editors Everett Themer and Eric Markham. And if you head over to Patreon.com, you could support Space Out Radio for as low as a buck a month. Become a patron of SORs today. Winston Ross had to get going. He was a contributing writer for Newsweek magazine covering the story of Vancouver's missing feet. So in hour number three, we bring in our resident scientist, Eric Markham, to join us. Eric, how you doing, my friend? Hey, doing great. Good to have you here, my friend. You know, this is such an interesting story because there are so many ways that this could go. I was talking to a very good friend of mine who is a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police earlier on today. And this person stated to me that they believe there is a killer. They're not sure if it's gang-related or if there's actually a serial killer going on and going around. But it's interesting, the timeline that I read off in hour number three, that between 2007-2008... There were eight or nine of these feet. I'm just going to count them here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Pardon me. Seven feet that washed up between August 20th, 2007 and November 11th, 2008. That is a very, very weird timeline for so many instances just to pop up out of nowhere. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, that seems to be an inordinate amount of feet to have wash up on your up on your beach. It just kind of makes me wonder what the what the current is like, if these could maybe have been well, when was that big Japanese tsunami? That was 2011. 2011. Okay, so that was after that. Hmm. I don't know. That's, uh, I'm, has anybody ever looked at them and determined whether they were sawed off or did they just rot off? And then like, like you said, they rot off and then the, the float, the foot, the shoe being buoyant, they float up and end up in the, on the beach. Has ever, anybody ever looked into it that far? I think they've tried to, I really do believe that they have tried to Eric, because you know, they're going to search for everything. There's patterns here. There are patterns. And we can understand that. Most of the shoes were runners. And you know what? This is a dangerous area. Okay. There there are huge currents all around. One of the most dangerous areas in the province is where the Pacific Ocean from the Georgia Strait meets up with the Fraser River. And the current around there has capsized boats. People go missing. Let's face it, water is dangerous. If you're on the if you're on a boat and you fall off, okay, never mind the wildlife, but the currents can take you away very, very quickly. And just when you think you're getting close to shore, something pushes you back out. So it's easy for people to drown. There's been scuba divers who have just not come up because they get caught in the currents as well. And with so many different waterways, obviously water always flows towards the ocean. It's easy to see where this could happen, accidental or not. And the easy answer is accidentally. 
But for so many of these feet to turn up between Washington State and mainly here at British Columbia, but like Winston said, there's no really there's really no reports of this happening anywhere else in the world with as much frequency as this. To me, that just makes me scratch my head a little bit. And then when I have my police officer friend tell me that a lot of officers believe there is a murderer going around, combine that with the history of the Pacific Northwest of serial killers, I don't think that they are doing enough about it to tell the public the truth. What do you think? Uh, they're probably just trying to keep it quiet. I'm looking at a, a, a current map, and there's a thing called the Alaska Current that just it flows to the north along the along the coast of Vancouver. And it ties in with the California coast. So it's entirely possible that the, the way the California, the North Equatorial, the, uh, the uh, California current flows, that it could be picking these things up over in Asia, these feet. It's entirely, and then they're coming across and get caught in that Alaska current which is cycles right there along the, in that little pocket. If you're looking at the continental United States where Alaska sticks out and where Vancouver is, there's a current that just sets right in there in a spire. So there's no telling where these things are coming from. They might be people who screwed up one too many times with the Yakuza in Japan from the way the currents flow. I know there's a bunch of questions on here, and I know you've been listening to the show the entire night, as you do almost every single night on this program. Dennis has a question that I'm going to throw your way. He goes, this is, there's a question of difference of size of feet of a person. Most of us are lean on our, lean on our right foot. But then again, the difference in size of feet for people is still up in the air. His left foot is slightly bigger than his right because of an accident early in life. So could that be why one shoe stays in or one foot stays in a shoe and another one doesn't? That's entirely possible. Uh, hmm. That could be because one of my feet is like a 10 and a half and the other's 11. So I have to buy, you know, you, it brings up a point. You buy shoes to match, you know, you got your your biggest foot's the one you match your shoe to, so it's entirely possible they are lace up like running shoes though, so you'd think they'd be tight enough to you know if they're laced up properly, they should be holding the foot. I didn't know I didn't hear him say have they ever matched any two feet? Yes, as they, yes, they did. Uh, okay, a, a woman's both of a woman's feet have been found. Hmm. Yeah, so that has taken part there. But but it's just majorly interesting, though, because, like I said, Vancouver has, because it's a port city, a large contingent of mafia. It has a large contingent of gang warfare because of the drug 
cartels that are in town. Marijuana, especially from British Columbia, is very sought after. I once had a police officer friend tell me that they were able, the gangs around here were able to trade BC Bud straight out in international waters, straight across for cocaine or hashish, or even heroin, because BC Bud is that potent. So it could be pretty much anything. I also like the idea of what one of the listeners said. I mean, you know, Vancouver for a long time had a problem with stowaways coming over and just showing up on these on these decrepit boats from Asia, from China. Mainly it was from China. And these people would show up hundreds at a time in boats that should not have made it across the ocean, but people died on those boats coming across. And you wonder, do they throw the dead people over? And maybe those are people who, whose feet washed up on the shore. So there are a lot of plausible reasons as to why this has happened. But it just seems weird. And like I said right in the beginning of hour number one, a good friend of mine who is a news editor at one of the radio stations in Vancouver, on the record, he'll stick with the police side. Off the record, he is fully convinced that there is a serial killer. But it's one of those things we just don't know. Is there any particulars... Is there any particular time of year that the the shoes show up more often, or more shoes? Is it cyclical, or is it just random? It's cyclical. As, as anybody, it is cyclical? Yeah, they've had reports of feet washing up almost in every month. Looking mm. at the reports here of the feet, we have August, February, May, June, November, October, December, January, it looks like so March, it looks like March and April and July have skipped. They're the lucky ones, same as September. Hmm. I just wonder if they ever correlated the feet washing up with maybe the some fishing season in Alaska, like king crab season or halibut halibut season or something like that. Well, you know, it might be unfortunate fishermen that got swept. You know, I don't know how, what the statistics are, but I'm sure every season they lose some, you know, they do lose people off of those fishing boats, you know, those, the trawlers and whatnot. Absolutely. Much is plausible. But the reason why I want to get you on here is because with your science and you're dealing in the health field, you deal a lot with, with people. You've dealt a lot with dead people. You've sat in on autopsies you know pretty much everything there is to know about the human body. Decomposition in the water. How long can a body last underwater? Uh, a lot of variables there. It depends on how much scavenger activity, uh, water temperature. I mean, in, in summer, uh, when it's really... And it depends on how, how deep they go. You know, they don't... You get more decomposition in, you know, it makes sense. You get more de- decomposition in warmer water. Cooler water, the damage is going to be caused by, for the most part, it's going to be caused by scavengers. They're not going to give up a, a good meal. Um, 
I know that even in cold water, the the head tends to fall off of a, a victim, you know, body first. You got that large piece of bone floating on that little that little neck, and that part rots away first. So a lot of times when you recover a body that's been in the water, there's no head. So you can't identify by de- dental records unless, you know, you're lucky enough to find the head, too. Uh, extremities, like fingers, stuff like that, tend to go, you know, fall off. So e- even in the coldest mystery, a body will last, depending on the water temperature, three to four months at least if it's cold water. Because, you know... I'm not saying they're going to bob up and look like you know they're just sleeping. They're going to be they're going to be nasty. But you know if the water's if the water's cold enough, and plus with that Alaska current up there, it probably would keep them. You know, probably keep them from going anywhere for three at least three to four months. I would think. But if the head is the first to go, why wouldn't we find any skeletal remains of a skull, or even parts well, of a head? Yeah, I'm surprised, like, maybe the jaw... Well, then again, okay, we're finding feet because they're in shoes that float. The A skull, once it becomes detached, of course, scavengers, worms, and stuff are going to go in through where the brainstem hooks up. I can't think of the name of that process. A little hole in the back of the skull where the spine goes in. But that's going to get hollowed out. And that, you know, plus... Brain matter rots pretty quick anyway, but once that cavity is empty, of course, as the scavengers eat the brain, dirt and water are going to fill, so the skull is not going to be buoyant. That's part of the reason it falls off. It's heavy and it's on a small stalk of bone, and once the neck muscles start to weaken, that's why it falls off. So it's not something that would normally float anyway. So that's probably why we're not getting any of those. Plus, you know, there's nothing about the lower mandible that's going to be buoyant. So those kind of bones are going to probably just settle on the bottom, and then the silt's going to cover them up. I think the reason we're seeing these feet is because, you know, they're in the sneakers can float. The sponge rubber soles aren't going to get waterlogged because it's a closed cell foam. Dawn is asking, what does, or how does a body react to the salt from ocean water in regards to decomposition? That is a good question. I'm not sure. Because seawater and blood are roughly the same tonicity. I think 0.9%, you know, average is like 0.9% sodium chloride. I would, I'm just pulling this off the top of my head, but I don't think the salt, the saline content would have as much, would, would be as much of a factor as the water temperature. I think water temperature, temperature is your biggie there. And it tends to be awfully cold along the Pacific. I, most of the scuba divers I know that do anything out in that area, they're using dry suits because the, 
the water is cold, colder than what you'd want to use a, a standard open wetsuit for. So take us through the decomposition, because I think this is is a big thing. You mentioned the head goes first in regards to it, and I don't mean to get morbid here, but we need to learn about this in regards to this topic. Is it the joints after the head? I'm thinking the shoulders, the elbows, the wrists, the, the hips, the knees, and then the torso would be the last. And I'm saying without anything predatory feeding off of the body. Yeah, your extremities are going to go after. Usually when they find a floater, the arms are the ones I've seen. The arms, we got a torso, basically. The head was gone. Uh, the legs had pretty much fallen off. You know, it was just that basic, you know, trunk for the, you know, the really bad. Sometimes, depending if they're, not a lot of predators. The ligaments might hold the uh, shoulders together. You know, there might be an arm on it, but usually the fingers are gone. Like I said, it, a lot of that depends on the temperature of the water. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, then, colder temperatures, which you would see here on the Pacific Coast, probably would help preserve a body more than, say, in the Gulf of Mexico? Yes. The colder water in the... Yes. You're going to have... What happens like in the summer and in warmer water is when the body bloats, the gases make it buoyant. And it flow. Of course, you know, the gas bubbles don't escape, so this, this body will rise. When you're in colder water, you don't get as much bloat, like they're talking... Uh, like they say, Lake Superior, the lines in that song, Superior, it said, never gives up, it's dead. That's because it's super cold water. And before a body de decomposes enough to float, in most instances, it's already been scavenged out. Mm -hmm. How big of a role do you think natural predators make this story well the fact that they're in jogging shoes that they're in some kind of they're not wearing like beach shoes sandals it makes me think that the common thread is these people are wearing you know running shoes so they're not like I don't think they're just your average beachcombers. I don't know. that. I'm sure that predation has something to do. More scavenging than predation. Basically, none of us... Uh, I think it was Richard Leakey said the reason humans evolved is they smelled bad and tasted worse. We're not too many predators first pick is something to eat. Unless they're they're sick or old and can't catch, you know, preferred prey, even the shark attacks that happen are usually a case of mistaken identity. It's rare that a great white eats a human. It, I mean, it's small consolation it takes a forty pound bite out of the middle of your body and decides you don't have 
good enough fat content and doesn't finish the meal, but you know, you're dead just the same, but it's still a matter of I imagine it's scavengers, uh, hagfish, uh, oh Lord, what do we got out there? We got hagfish, lampreys, there's, uh, octopi, well, you know, there, there's, there's this countless, you know, bacteria, uh, sea worms. There's so much crabs. Crabs are a biggie. Think about that next time you go to a good crab bake. <laughs> they're scav. They're, you know, they're scavengers. So I'm thinking most likely these bodies. I figure these bot people are being killed, tossed off a boat, and who's ever done doing it doesn't realize you've got that Alaska current cycling right there off the coast going up. So they're tossing these bodies out. The bodies are, you know, they're thinking the scavenger is going to take care of the work for them. And by and large, except for the feet, they do. You know, the feet become detached. The rest of the body, it's either not buoyant because it's been, the tissue's been eaten off of it. Or, you know, it just hasn't, had, it hasn't gassed up. So it's going to be, you know, the lungs are full of water. So it's weighted down and the feet float off because they got those, the floaty shoes on them. And let's face it, the way shoes are made today, with runners being so airlight, it's no reason why they aren't floating. They're floating devices. Once separated, that's right. a, that's simple science there. Yeah, you've got you've got a they they have enough lift or enough buoyancy to take what's left of the foot and and bring it up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, in your guesstimation, is this just natural science happening? You know, of decomposition, or do you think that there is actually a killer running around? Uh, that's a, I think that's just, that's, that's a bunch of feet. I think there's a killer. I think whether it's one person or it's gang related or like you said, you've got the triads. I'm sure the Russians are out there. The You've got all this organized crime out there. You're right off the water. Anybody who screws up, yeah, they get a nice one way boat ride and the feet that are floating up are, you know, people either owed, the, owed their bookie money or screwed somebody on a drug deal or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things going on. A lot of things going on. Let's change topics here for the final half an hour of the show. I think All we've right. been morbid enough. Next, It's your birthday. Well, still here on the West Coast, it's still the preacher's birthday. How's your birthday been? Oh, pretty low-key. I had me a pizza and... I've just pretty much uh, lounged around, being lazy, <laughs> not good, good not doing you. a whole lot of everything. Played a lot of guitar, you know. Just Very messed nice. around, took advantage of not having anywhere to be or anything to do. That's actually sounding like the perfect birthday, my friend. It was <laughs> really does sound like the perfect birthday. I can tell you that. Well, I'll be busy as heck this time next week. Well, 
in exactly 31 minutes, it is my mother's birthday. She'll be 74. Oh, nice. Yeah, she is a Cinco de Mayo, which is always nice. So I'll have to make sure I make that phone call tomorrow. Yep. Give it mom the Revenge of the Fifth. <laughs> yeah, she's on Revenge of the Fifth, yes. Oh, the Star Wars thing. <laughs> Will that ever go away? No, I have a feeling it won't. I know, I know. All right. Next week, though, myself, you, Everett Themer, from the Encounter Online, we are all finally going to get to meet each other. Finally. Yeah. We're all going to be attending the Provincetown Paracon in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Yours truly will actually be speaking. I got the noon slot. You never want the morning slot at a Paracon. Morning slot is dangerous. Because you're just starting off and, and you know, you don't want to be the warm-up gig. In case nobody likes you and usually people haven't showed up. So I'm glad I got the noon slot. I'm like third or fourth speaker in to the day. I'm pretty excited about it. Pretty excited about it. I think it's going to be a blast. I really do. It's a power answer right there, Preacher. Power answer. (laughs) No, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's, it's my first Paracon. And even if I'm just, I'm support staff, you know, I'll be the guy has a little thing around his neck that says lackey, (laughs) but uh, it's still going to be fun meeting. You know, we're going to meet some of the people we we've interviewed, some of the people we, you know, we only know by their electronic presence. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be a blast. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to prank you at Logan airport. (laughs) Get a haircut. That'll do it. Get a haircut. No problem. (laughs) Yes, you'll be picking me up at Logan Airport in Boston, and then we'll make our our trek over to Provincetown. Now, Sam Beltrusis, who has been a guest on this show, he's the one setting it up, and they got some really cool people who are coming to this. Headliners being Amy Bruni and Adam Berry. They have their own paranormal television show. You might remember Amy from the Taps show. (laughs) Yes. Here's Dave speaking about paranormal media. And, of course, there's Taps members there. Do I bite my tongue or do I just roll with it? That's the big one that I want to know, man. You roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) I would roll with it. I don't know. I don't know. I almost want to challenge him on it. What are you solving? Tell me what you're solving. Tell me what you're doing scientifically. I noticed, and maybe it's just my cynical nature, but it seemed to me that when uh, that show was on, that if it was an inn or a restaurant or some kind of commercial enterprise that could benefit from being haunted, they tended to find more evidence. <laughs> just just saying. If it was an isolated lighthouse out in the middle of nowhere that took a four-hour boat ride to get to, eh, not so much. But if there was a 
if it was a money-making endeavor, it seemed like those people were always haunted. They always found some evidence. It's like, well, we're not going to say it's haunted, but we did get some activity. Well, you just said it was haunted. So you just probably gave them a 30% boost in sales. Oh, I, I got, that's what kind of why I quit watching those shows. They just seemed like they were like marketing ploys for people who had bed and breakfasts. I can understand that and I can see that. But apparently this event is sold out, which is kind of cool, you know, and I'm just glad to be a part of it because this is Sam's first one that he's putting on and it runs next weekend, the 12th to the 14th. So if you're on the East Coast and looking for something to do, that is the place to be. And you definitely want to come meet. I want to meet you guys. So if you guys are interested in coming on out to the Paracon, I want to meet you. I think it'd be kind of cool. But I do, this is one thing I do want to do, because I've never really been to the East Coast. I've never seen the Atlantic Ocean, as sad as that sounds. I'll be 44 this month and never seen the Atlantic Ocean. So one of the things that I actually want to do is I want to go see it, number one. But number two, I hear there's some really good lobster around that area. I want to eat, an, I want to eat a lobster. I want to dig right in. When you snap the tail off, there's a, I think it's the liver. They call it the mustard, and some people say that's a delicacy. If you snap that tail off wrong and get that green crap all over your lobster, as far as I'm concerned, you've ruined it. Last time I did it, I had to take it into the, the men's room and <laughs> use the water in the, the sink to get that crap off of it. I like it better as a uh, lobster roll or somewhere it's already prepared there's a lot of effort going into eating a lobster it's worth it though it's oh my god it's good i'll let them i'll I'll let them shuck it first i'll let them yeah yes my speech will be on paranormal media it's a lot harder to write about than what you think it's a lot harder I imagine, because I'm trying to get mine together for uh, Science and the Paranormal for Eric Cooper's. And there's so many avenues you can take it. And as I, you know, I, and I'm having to resist the temptation of being overly scientific and dry. I'm trying to make it something that anybody who listens is going to get something out of it. And it, it's tough. How long is your? How long are you? Is it going to be ninety minutes or? I got sixty minutes. Traveling thirty five hundred miles for sixty minutes. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, man. It's going to oh, be a lot of fun. It really is. So just you, just you, me, and Everett getting together is going to be worth the trip. I think. Absolutely. Unless Absolutely. you know. We all get in the same room and absolutely can't stand each other. Well, that is that is something that may happen. That is something that may happen. You know, I, I, I will say this. You know, looking at the lineup here, it's mainly all paranormal. And here they have old Dave who, you know, is, a, is 50-50. I'm on the fence with the paranormal. 
But they got some good people. They got some really good people going in. We check in on Friday. The Provincetown Inn. And we go from there. Big VIP bash. The Mayflower Room. Greg Newkirk and Dana Matthews will be there from Planet Weird. Bringing their traveling museum of the paranormal and the occult. That would be kind of cool to see. Saturday is the lectures. I'm the fourth speaker. And I'm talking paranormal journalism. And then it's lunchtime. Total lunchtime. I'm going to go pig out somewhere. Hopefully I can find a McDonald's because I haven't had a Big Mac in a long time. (laughs) That was one of the most popular things to do when the Nimitz pulled into... uh, Oh, gosh, what was it? Uh, Coastal French port. It's the Lucerne? No, that's Italy. Anyhow, everybody wanted to jump on the uh, train ride into Nice because in your at that time Nice France was like one of the few McDonald's in the uh, in Europe. So that was everybody's big ambition was to jump, you know, I wanted to go see the Louvre and some of the other stuff, but most almost all these guys were like, I'm gonna go to Nice and get a Big Mac or a Larch Deluxe, however they pronounce it. Royale <laughs> a Royale with cheese. Yeah, something like, yeah. Royale. Royale. Exactly. Royale. Exactly. Yeah, I'm wondering how I'm going to fit in here. Because looking at the lineup, looking at the lineup, okay, they have Psychic Medium, Paranormal Investigator. Then they have Provincetown Murders with Sandra Lee. That would be interesting. New England's Mythical mystical Monsters with Peter Muse. Then myself. Then Sam Baltrusis. 13 Most Haunted. We've had him on the show talking about that. John Brightman from the Bridgewater Triangle. That is going to be cool. we got to watch that. I want to listen yes. to that one. And what then Tim Weisberg and Stephanie Burke from Spooky South Coast are going to hop on. And then Adam Berry and Amy Bruni from Kindred Spirits on TLC. And the Ghost Hunters. They're going to tell us how to prove things are haunted. Yeah, I think we better skip that one just to keep from pulling a Mystery Science 3000 on them. Mystery well, Science Theater 3000, where, where they just, make the snarky comments. <laughs> we're we're going to, you know what? We're going to have to borrow some snark from all the guys at Spaced Out Radio on Twitter, at hashtag Spaced Out Radio, because they bring some good games sometimes. Sometimes i got to rough them up a little bit, you know, and and get them feeling, you know, tell them to bring their A game, but nine times out of ten, they're they're right on the ball. We're going to have to get some pre-ordered lines from them on, you know, giving us some good snark, getting ready for this conference. You know? So this will be our first and our last paragraph. We we, we may never be invited back. We may never be invited back. (laughs) You know? But that's, that's okay. That's okay, because Sam's a good guy. I'm sure he would invite us back. It's going to go really good. going to go really good. Speaking of Paracons, 
We'll get back to the Provincetown here in a little bit. The Space Out Radio Paracon is coming around September 29th through October 1st, a three-day event where we got things happening every day. I'm going to give you all a little bit of a lineup because I've designed the lineup. I still need two speakers. Preacher, you may be one. I might just get you to fill in. Okay. Yeah, I know you'll be tough on that. Saturday night, or make that Friday night when we start, Lorian Fenton, who's been a guest on this show, she's coming up from California to talk about conspiracy and UFOs, what the government is hiding. And then after that, we're going to go to a live Spaced Out Radio show from the Spruce Hills Resort, where we'll be holding the event in the 108-mile ranch area of British Columbia. Followed, if you don't want to take in the radio show, because I do have a face for radio, Samantha Mowat will be doing a UFO sky watch that night. Weather permitting, of course. Saturday morning, we're still trying to fill. And then Mike Morin from Canadian Paranormal Investigations. You hear him here on Ghosts of the Great White North. He is going to speak about the paranormal. 10.30 to 11.45 before we have a break for lunch. Then Christina George is coming up from California. You've heard her on this show. A lot of people you've heard on this show. And then we got another break. I got to fill that one in yet. And then the young and talented Elizabeth April, who is going to become a monthly regular on this show, is going to talk about spirituality, communication, channeling from 3.30 to 4.45. Then from 5 o'clock until 7, Miriam Delicato, ET experiencer, is going to be the main speaker of the event. And the reason she is getting that is because her abduction actually happened in the town that I live. So that's going to be really cool. It'll be the only second time in 30 years, almost 30 years since that happened. Only the second time she will be in town to speak about this. Wow. And then we're going to have another live radio show. I think I'll be hosting that night because I think James Tyson is going to be taking part in the museum ghost hunt that night as well. And then Sunday, because this is a three-day event, Eric Cooper from Forest Moon Paranormal and S4, he is going to be talking about extraterrestrial species from 10 in the morning till 11.15. Joanna Banka from Two Mediums and a Large, Joanna the Medium, will also be talking about psychic ability, spirituality, from 11.30 to 12.45. Then Samantha Mowat at 2 o'clock to 3.15. And then the crypto guru, Ronald Murphy, traveling all the way from Pennsylvania to make it to our Paracon. He wraps things up before we do a roundtable wrap-up and then another ghost hunt and live radio show. So that is our weekend that we have planned. I just got to find two more speakers. You know, here's the funny part about it. You know, British Columbia has a lot of Bigfoot stories. I've gone to like four or five different Bigfoot, British Columbia-based Bigfoot groups. And I said, do you guys want to come up? Somebody, who, who should I talk to about coming up and speaking at this event? I want someone from British Columbia to do that. Not a single person has actually inquired. 
I did this a couple of weeks ago. I don't know whether to take that as insulting or the Bigfoot community in British Columbia is actually kind of aloof. Yeah, that's... You would think they'd jump at the chance to get out and tell their stories. I don't know. That's that's kind of puzzling. I know. I mean, yes, we have some time. we got like five months. But that time will come quick. That time will come quick. Yeah. But, but the one thing <laughs> I like about our Paracon is for a first-time event... I'd put it up against some of the big ones. I really would. Now, we may not have the power speakers, as a lot of other ones do. John Porter. If, if you ever follow us on Twitter at hashtag SpacedOutRadio, John Porter, every show, tries to crack me up. And he just did. He goes, you need two speakers? Can they be two nameless ghost hunting chicks? <laughs> that goes to a certain radio show we did a couple of weeks ago where some people think I was a little rough on a couple of ghost hunters involved with taps. I was just asking questions like a good journalist should. But he harasses me over it. He harasses me. Yeah, I've been waiting to get some hate mail over a flat earth guy. We haven't, though. I'll tell I you. Know. I have had probably five or six people from the flat earthers come up to me and say, when are you bringing D Daniel back on? When are you bringing him back on? He was fantastic. I think the thing with D Daniel is he's passionate about it. But he's a enthusiast and not an authority. I would rather I would like to get a hold of somebody who's got some ba you know some major scientific chops behind their names. You know, I know for a fact that you can get through a PhD program and not have enough sense to crap and rub it in your hair. I mean, I've seen some dumb PhDs, but at least they'll have answers. It won't devolve into a rant about conspiracies and why they're hiding it. They'll say, you know, that this illusion is caused by blank, blank, and blank. I think that would be a more interesting show. I, I want to try and find a scientist or somebody of education, and, and I'm not insulting Daniel by, by saying this, but I want to find somebody who has a scientific background who is a believer of flat earth. Yeah, I'm sure they're out there. I mean, I had a PhD level microbiologist that was my principal investigator in college who was a creationist. You you people think that if you are at that level of scientific, you know, when you have those three letters behind your name, you're not religious, you don't have any faith, science is your religion and your god. And I found out that is, maybe that is a popular misconception or it, they're the high profile people that have come out that were, you know, godless became the prototype. But most of the, most of the people I knew, most of the professors I knew in college 
were deeply spiritual, and some of them were downright religious, and kind of like fundamentalist religion, like the Bible says that it's true types. So I'm sure there's somebody out there with that, that education that's got the flat earth thing summed up. I don't know. But there's a lot of interest about it. There's a lot of interest about it. We may have to go back there one time. We just okay, may. I'll start looking. I'll start looking. I'd like to. I'd like to do that again. To be honest with you, I'd like to okay. do that again. Let's just try. Would be it. nice. Let's just yeah. try it out. Just get somebody who's more. Like I said not putting the guy down, but there's a difference between an adherent or an enthusiast and an authority. And I think the next time we do that, we cover that, we need to get an authority. Somebody's actually got some chops behind them. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Back to the Paracon. You are going to be picking me up at the airport, right? You're not going to forget about me. Oh, let's see. What is that? The, uh, the twelfth, you fly in? <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> no, I've got. I for those that don't know, we have meetings and we go. I have calendar pages that I write in guests and in big bold letters, highlighted with yellow. Dave's flight, Boston, Logan, and the time. Nice. So what I've been doing is looking at the routes to go. I'm planning on leaving probably Wednesday night. Yes, because you're I'm, driving out. You know, yeah, I, I drive. I'm dri- Do you know if I'm picking up Everett? Too, I have no, or no he, idea. No idea. I guess we need to, he's need still, to find he, out. He's still debating. He, he's oh. got you know. He, he's got a few days to do it yet. He's got a few days. This is from Eric at hashtag Spaced Out Radio going into my Paracon speech. She says... Dave, your opening statement must be a retraction of your belief in abduction, UFOs, and Bigfoot. Followed by your confession of being a chronic liar, and then you smile and wait for the laughter. Boom! The ice is open, or the ice is broken. That might be a good way to go. That might be a very good way to go. That or just with the most serious... Just downright serious, level voice you can manage. Look at the crowd and say, Soylent Green is made from people. The hell is Soylent Green? That's an old classic sci-fi. It was Edgar G. Robinson's last movie. Uh, Charlton Heston's in it. And it's one of those post-apocalyptic overpopulation things and the most they had everybody ate these little blocks and they were called soylent and there was different colors. Well, the most popular one and the hardest one to get a hold of was soylent green. And it turns out that soylent green was recycled dead people. In the last scene of the movie, the Charlton Heston's being carried away and he's yelling at the top of his lungs, soylent green is made from people. We're eating people. <laughs> It's one of those sixties things, I guess. But it's considered a, a cult classic. It's a well done movie. It just obviously got that sixty late sixties, early seventies vibe to it. The 
cinematography, the acting, and everything. But it was pretty funny. In in retrospect, watching it now, it's funny. John wants me to say my speech in my hockey skates so they know I'm Canadian. Oh. I thought you were going to wear your hockey jersey with the big maple leaf on the front. Oh, hell no. Oh, no, hell no. I'm not a maple leaf fan. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe a Team Canada jersey. Maybe a Team Canada jersey. I got one of those. I'm actually in, in an eBay auction for a Canucks jersey. Why? They just, should be right now. They should be paying you to buy that. Yeah, just you always mention them, and I thought that'd be my te- my my bit of Canada Canada Belia. <laughs> Canada Belia. There's a new word. That's why we love you, Americans. You keep making up new language as we go. You just do it on the fly. Yeah, you do. You do it on the fly. That was one of my favorite quotes from the late Alistair Cook. He said. The English and the Americans were a, a, well, they were a people divided by a common language. Wow, we only got like a couple minutes left, preacher. That's a quick hour. Very quick hour. You know, I do got to say, as we are growing on Spaced Out Radio, there's a few people I want to thank, and I probably don't do it enough. You know, everybody hears about you, everybody hears about Everett and James and Elizabeth on the weekend show, but there's a couple people behind the scenes that I do want to mention, you know, just as a big thank you, because we don't really do it that often. Jolene, who does our website, takes care of everything at spacedoutradio.com. You know, she pushes herself to the limit to try and make things happen. Usually she's waiting for a direction from myself to figure it out, but me being the non-internet kind of guy, even though I know how to use it, I'm sure I'm a little bit of a pain in the ass there. You know, we have new member of our team, Catherine James, who is starting to do a great job with our social media on Facebook, on Twitter. Got to get her getting up uh, to speed on our Instagram, because I don't understand Instagram. I just don't get it. Maybe it's just me. I just don't get Instagram. But I want to thank her for doing what she does on a daily basis. Kim Gandy, who has taken over the business side as of last Friday, and she is starting to pound radio stations saying, hey, what do we got to do to get Spaced Out Radio on the air with you guys? And she's getting some really good information about what we need to do to change up this show on the fly and things are going to be happening. But probably the the biggest one that I can say that I don't give enough pub to is Bob Davis. He's the guy who voices all the commercials coming out of the intros you know, the intro right at the beginning before I come on the air and, you know, coming out of the commercial breaks. He's got that killer radio voice. Killer radio mm-hmm. voice. And I want to say thanks, buddy. Thanks, Bob. You're a good dude for doing that, you know. And we got a lot of people out there supporting things. Supporting everything that we do. Really appreciate that. You know, we are growing bigger. We're growing better every single day. I see new people around at Highly Hatfield 
There's a new person following us. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And we're seeing some old faces back, too. Bruce Becker came back. Dominique came back. About time. I like seeing the old faces rejoin the lineup, because that's a lot of fun. Preacher, you hold on for a couple minutes. i got to wrap this thing up, man. It's that time. If you're listening in on the Space Out Radio side or Terrestrial Radio side, you hear Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, our resident guitar god, plays the double B-foot, one with frets, the other one fretless. So talented. Little Brother is watching, is cranked in the background. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. He brings us in and takes us home every single night on this program. Tomorrow night on the show, our Keith Andrews is back. The ET Connection, it happens the first Friday of every month. It's always a great pleasure to have Keith back on the air. We'll find some topic to talk about. Him and I really never know up until about 10 minutes before showtime what we're going to do. And then we just absolutely wing it. I forgot to mention Dennis Koch as well. Dennis is always tweeting out our stuff, putting it all over Facebook. Dennis, you have no idea how much I appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. And for all of you who share this show, take the time. It's because of you guys that we are getting bigger and better every single night. I'll keep trying to bring my best product. You guys keep showing up. And let's own the night together. At Space Out Radio, we own the night. SpaceOutRadio.com is our website. Make sure you check it out. Thanks to everyone in the chat rooms hanging out with me tonight. You guys make it so much fun. Even you, Mr. Skeptic. Even you. Make it fun. Mr. Bumblefoot, take us home. Good night.